Luke 15, verses 1 to 10. Let's go ahead and read that section. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Lord, would you make alive these words to us? Help us to clearly understand what you are communicating here. Give us the heart of God for lost people, just like Jesus had that same heart. We pray that we would have that heart, that you would infuse it into us. Lord, enlighten our eyes. Give us understanding that we might obey you today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus told Zacchaeus, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And I can't think of a better illustration of the seeking Savior than in Luke chapter 15. The whole purpose of why Jesus came from heaven to earth was to seek and to save lost people. And Jesus throws a floodlight upon that mission of his here in Luke chapter 15. Because in Luke 15, we find the joy of the seeking Savior. That's what is brought to light here in these three vignettes. These three little stories that go together to form really one big story. Notice with me verse 3. Jesus said, so he told them this parable, singular. He didn't say he told them these parables. He said he told them this parable. And nowhere else are we told that the prodigal son, that that was a separate parable. We're not told about verses 8 through 10, that the lost coin was a separate parable. It appears that Luke chapter 15 in its entirety is a single parable with three different parts. The first part deals with a lost sheep. The second part deals with a lost coin. And the third part deals with the lost son. Now we usually call this third part the parable of the prodigal son, but he's never called a prodigal here, but he is called a lost son. In verse 24, This son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. So here's the lost son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep. So lostness is the theme that pervades all three parts of this singular parable here in Luke chapter 15. And there are three themes that come out again and again and again throughout this chapter. The theme of someone being lost, or something being lost. Secondly, that thing being found. And thirdly, the great joy that arises out of the finding of the thing that is lost. Lost, found, and joy. Now, if we're going to understand Luke 15, we have to understand that they're connected very, very closely to verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2 are the occasion of this parable. It's the setting for the parable. And unless we get verses 1 and 2, we're not going to understand the rest of the chapter. So let's look at it pretty carefully this morning. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. 
Now, there's two groups of people here. Tax collectors and sinners form the first group, and the Pharisees and the scribes form the second group. And no two groups could be more opposed to each other than these two groups. First of all, he talks, here we learn in verse 1 about this group of the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors were despised and hated and vilified within Israel. They were looked on as traitors and thieves. Traitors because they were Jews, but they were taking tax money from their fellow Jews and turning around and giving it to the enemies of Israel, which are the Romans. So they were traitors. They were betraying their own countrymen by selling themselves out to the Romans, taking money from their own countrymen and giving it to the Romans themselves. But they were also looked upon as thieves. It's an interesting fact that many, many if not most tax collectors were rich men. Zacchaeus, we're told, was a very rich man, and he was a tax collector. The reason they got rich is because they were thieves. <laughs> they, they could take as much as they wanted to. The Romans didn't care how much taxes they took. All they cared about was getting their own cut. So as long as they gave the Romans their own cut, the Romans would let them collect as much as they possibly could. So they'd go around and try to get as much tax money from their own countrymen as they possibly could, and they lined their pockets with all the excess that they didn't have to give to Rome. So, they were rich men, they were thieves, in the sense that they, they weren't being honest with their countrymen, and they were traitors. Now, in addition to these tax collectors, we're told there were also this group called the sinners. Now, everybody's a sinner, but that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about notorious sinners. Thugs, crooks, murderers, prostitutes. The most notorious sinners in that day would make up this group. So you've got the tax collectors and the sinners forming a group, and Jesus is receiving them. Jesus is welcoming them. Jesus is sitting down and eating with them. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us, but in the first century, that was a big deal. Because to eat with somebody meant friendship. It meant acceptance and approval and friendship with the person you're eating with. It was a way of becoming one with the person that you were sharing a meal with. And so the Pharisees and the scribes looked at Jesus eating with, receiving these thugs and prostitutes and tax collectors and notorious sinners, and they started to grumble. They didn't like that one bit. They thought that was horrible, that this man who everyone claimed he was a holy man, a rabbi, would actually receive sinners and eat with them. It was horrible. Now this other group, verse 2, is made up of the Pharisees and scribes. Pharisees were, and scribes, they were the cream of the crop. They were the religious elite of Israel. Pharisees were renowned for meticulously observing God's law and its external effects. So they would spend their life trying to learn God's law and then very meticulously keeping that law on all of its points. And so, yes, they were the religious elite. They were the ones that people looked up to. In fact, there was a proverb of the day that said, if only two people make it to heaven, one's going to be a scribe, the other's going to be a Pharisee. That's how the people looked at them. The word Pharisee means separated one. And so they looked at themselves as sort of a cut above everybody else. They were separate from the rest. The rest of the people might be okay. They might believe in God. They might try to keep the law. But the Pharisees were separate from them and distinct and respectable. They felt like they had worked for heaven. They'd earned heaven. And nobody was going to keep them from heaven. Because they deserved it. And one of the things they had done to deserve heaven was that they had avoided all the riffraff and the scum and the notorious sinners of Israel, and they'd kept themselves separate and to themselves, and so that they, that was sort of brownie points. <laughs> they had earned their right to be close to God because they had separated themselves from anybody who wasn't as holy as they were, like these tax collectors and these sinners. And so you can just imagine them looking down their noses at these people that are coming to Jesus and raising their eyebrows when they watch Jesus receive them, and their sneering remark, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. You know, that, that's, that's the effect it would have had 
when they said this to Jesus. To them, this is the ultimate crime, that somebody would actually receive these kind of people and eat with them. Now notice verse 3. It starts with the word, so. So, he told them this parable. Do you see the connection between verse 1 and 2 and the parable to follow? The reason Jesus tells this long parable in three parts is because of the Pharisees and the scribes' attitude. Their self-righteous attitude that they were above others and they looked down on others with contempt. And they grumbled at Jesus receiving them and eating with them. They grumbled about that. And so Jesus is going to tell them a singular parable in three parts to show them, number one, that their attitude is condemned and that Jesus' actions are justified. See, Jesus is going to teach them that really what he's doing is what God is doing. That Jesus is simply reflecting God's heart in receiving sinners and eating with them. That's what God is like. And for them to be opposed to sinners means that they don't have God's heart at all. That they think they're being holy by being separate from sinners, but they are really showing that they're not like their Father in heaven. They're not like God. Notice how Jesus starts this rhetorical question in verse 4. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? So Jesus is saying, wouldn't you do the same thing? If you had a hundred sheep and one got lost, wouldn't you leave the ninety-nine and go after the one? And of course they would. They would all agree that, sure, I would do that. Well, that's what God is like, and that's what Jesus is like. By receiving sinners and eating with them, he's going after the one that's lost. So he's appealing to them, I'm just doing the same thing that you would do if we were in the same situation. So how can you condemn my actions when you would do the same thing? And then he says the same thing in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Now, in the two sections that we're going to look at this morning, actually in all three sections, you can see the scribes and the Pharisees represented, and you can also see the tax collectors and sinners represented. So in the first story of the lost sheep, who does that lost sheep represent? It represents the sinners that Jesus was receiving. What about the second one about the lost coin? Same thing, right? And the third one, the lost son. This represents the sinners coming to Jesus. Now, where do you find the scribes and the Pharisees in this first section? Do you see them there at all? I would say they're the 99 that thought that they were righteous. In their own estimation, they were righteous. They saw themselves as righteous, needing no repentance. In the second one, I believe they are the nine coins that didn't get lost. They were still in the pocket or on the headdress of the woman. We'll talk about that in a minute. And in the final one, the scribes and the Pharisees are the elder brother who won't come in and rejoice with the father now that his uh, younger son has come back. So the scribes and the Pharisees are in these three vignettes. They're in the parable. Um, and Jesus purposely puts them in because he needs to teach them how important it is for them to change their attitude and their perspective and gain God's heart for lost people which they totally did not have at this point. Now, notice also, there is a progression in this parable. In the first part of the parable, there is one sheep out of a hundred that's lost. So we have one percent. And that's not too bad for a rancher. Every rancher would expect at least a one percent loss of uh, his herd over predators coming in and killing off a portion. So one percent's not so bad. But the second pair, or second part of the parable, it's one out of ten now. So now we've gone from one percent to ten percent. And that's a more substantial loss. But when we come to the third section, it's one out of two, or fifty percent. And when you really think about the fact that the elder brother was lost too, it's actually a hundred percent. 
So the stakes are rising. Jesus intentionally, I think, is making this progression to help us see how valuable it is for these sinners to come back to him, that there's a sense of loss in his heart until they are recovered. Now, I'm just going to use three words to outline our, our text as we go through, and these are the three words, lost, found, and joy. Just, it, that's a hat rack to hang your points on this morning, lost, found, and joy. So let's look at that first word, lost. In verse 4, Jesus says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them? So I want you to think about the meaning of that word lost. Now we use the word lost in various senses. Like I might say, honey, I've lost my keys, I can't find them. And that means they're there and they're still usable, but I just don't know where they're at. I've been looking all over, just can't find those keys. They're lost. That's not the sense that the Bible uses when it talks about a lost sinner. The Bible uses it in a different sense. Like if you're watching a Giants game and the Giants are down 10 to nothing and it's the bottom of the ninth and the pitcher gets up to bat, you go, well, we lost the game. Now that doesn't mean you can't find the game, right? It's not like your keys that you can't find them. It means the, ga the game is not salvageable anymore. It's irrecoverable. It's passed into an irrecoverable state. It's lost. It's ruined. The game has perished, you might say. And it's interesting that when you've... The Greek word is apolumi. Apolumi is the Greek word here. When you trace that word through the New Testament, there's a range of meaning. And there are, there's a range of words that are used to translate that single Greek word. For example, John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's the word for lost. Should not perish. Or here in Luke 15 verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying. There's the word. I'm dying here for hunger. Or if we were to go over to Mark chapter 2, when Jesus talks about putting new wine into new, new wineskins. He says in verse 22, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost. Apolumi. Now it doesn't mean you can't find the wine. It means the wine is irrecoverable. It's useless. It's worthless. There's nothing you can do with it anymore. That's the sense that the Bible uses when it says that we are lost. We have come into this state of irrecoverability, unsalvageability. There's nothing we can do to recover ourselves or to save ourselves or to return us to a place of safety. We are lost. We are ruined. We are will perish. We are undone. It's talking about the effects of the fall upon mankind. The fall has brought ruin to the people of this world. So that's the meaning of this particular word. We just sang it this morning. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. It's not the sense that, you know, we're out in the woods trying to find our way home and it's getting dark and we don't know where we're going. That's not the sense in which sinners are lost. The sense is that they are ruined beyond repair and there's nothing they can do to reclaim themselves or recover themselves. Somebody else is going to have to do that reclaiming. Now, we're lost by nature and by choice. Think about that sheep that was lost. Why did he get lost in the first place? Why do sheep get lost? <laughs> they wander off, and why do they wander off? Because sheep have a nature that's predisposed to wander. We learn that from Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. That's the nature of a sheep, to go astray. Sheep like to wander. Why? Because they always think that the grass is greener on the other side. They're always thinking, it's going to be better if I just go over there. And you don't leave these guys to themselves. That shepherd doesn't know what he's talking about. I think it's better over in this valley. <laughs> and so sheep like to roam. They like to stray. They yearn for that which is forbidden them. They have roving eyes, longing for what? The shepherd has not provided for them. And we're the exact same way. 
And not only does that sheep have this nature that longs to stray away from the shepherd, that sheep makes a deliberate individual act. He makes a choice to stray away and to go in a different direction. And that's exactly like us, isn't it? We have a nature, we have a sinful nature that wants to be independent from God. How come? Because we want to do what we want to do and we don't want anybody else to tell us otherwise. <laughs> We're just like sheep. We want to, our independence, we, we think we know better than the shepherd. We want to go over that hill and down that rise. So we have this nature that we are born with that would like to be free from God's constraints and do whatever we feel like doing. Independence. But we also make individual choices and actions based on that nature that we have where we choose our own autonomy, our own freedom, and that's what gets us in all kinds of trouble, just like that sheep that gets lost. Notice also that lostness implies a state of total inability. A state of total inability. How, did, how does a sheep ever get restored to safety once it gets lost? <laughs> well, there's a nursery rhyme that tells us how that happens. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and can't tell where to find them. Leave them alone and they'll come home, wagging their tails behind them. Now, I don't know who wrote that nursery rhyme, but they didn't know anything about sheep. <laughs> Just ask any shepherd. If a sheep gets lost, it doesn't come home wagging its tail behind him. That sheep stays lost until the shepherd goes and gets it. See, a sheep is not like a homing pigeon where you can take that pigeon 100 miles away and let it go and it'll come right back home because it's got this instincts. Sheep are stupid. <laughs> they're just but the, the dumbest of God's creatures. Once they're lost, they are lost. And even a dog sometimes, if you take a dog a dozen miles away, somehow it knows how to find its way back home. But sheep will stay lost until somebody comes and reclaims them and actually brings them back. So... A sheep itself uh, has no ability to contribute towards getting itself reclaimed. If a sheep is ever restored, it's going to be 100% the work of the shepherd and 0% the sheep. The sheep has no merit. It doesn't cooperate with the shepherd. It just is a liability. <laughs> the sheep knows how to get itself lost, but it doesn't know how to get itself found again. That's something that has to be done for the sheep. Now, the second little story here about the coin, the coin here is a drachma. It's the Greek equivalent of the Roman denarii. And a denarii was a coin that was usually about the amount that you would give to a, a common laborer for one day's wage. So if you hired somebody to just work general labor for you, at the end of the day, you'd give them a denarii. The Greek word for that was drachma. This is the only place in all the Bible that word is used. Now, women, this woman had 10 of these drachmas. We're not told exactly why, but if you do a little digging into history, you find out that many women of that day would collect these drachmas and they would wear them as a headdress around her head on her wedding day. And this was her contribution to the marriage. It was her dowry. It was what she was contributing to that family when she got married. Sometimes they wore them as a necklace, these, these coins around their neck or across their head. So if a woman were to lose one of these, it wasn't just that she was losing the value of the coin. She was losing part of that which she can contribute to her new life. And so you can better believe that she's going to scour the house until she finds that coin. Now, if... That lost sheep couldn't find its way back to the fold. How much less is that lost coin going to find its way back to somebody's pocket? <laughs> Have you ever found a lost coin that fell out someplace? Just hop back in your pocket and, and save itself? <laughs> just doesn't happen. See, this is a, a state of total inability. The coin has no ability to, to find itself. The lost sheep has no ability to find its way back to the fold. It's going to take somebody else to go after it, lay hold of it, and bring it back. And that's what we find in Scripture. In no uncertain terms, Jesus said in John 6, 44, 
No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. A state of total inability. We can't come to Jesus. What does it mean to come to Jesus? Well, it means to believe in him, to exercise saving faith in him. Because Jesus said, He who believes in me shall not hunger, or he who comes to me shall not hunger, he who believes in me shall not, never thirst. So to believe and to come are the same thing. Jesus is saying, we can't savingly believe upon him unless God does something first. God has to come like the shepherd and get us and draw us back to the fold before we can enter into his kingdom. Or Ephesians 2 tells us the same thing, doesn't it? He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead, spiritually dead, cut off from God, alienated from the life of God, having no hope, without God, without Christ, without any hope in the world, totally spiritually cut off, dead, and unable to make the move towards God. A state of total inability. Notice also the environment of the lost thing. What environment was that lost sheep in? Well, it was in a wilderness. It was in a, you might say, a howling wilderness. A very dangerous place to be. Where there were many predators, like coyotes, or wolves, or bears, or lions. Predators that would kill that sheep. You, you know, don't you, that a sheep is absolutely defenseless. I mean, you think about almost any other creature that God has made. And they've got some means of defending themselves. A deer can run fast, like a jackrabbit. Those, they, can, they can escape their attackers because they can run really fast. Um, some have horns, some have antlers, some have fangs or sharp claws by which to defend themselves. Porcupines have quills that they can shoot like arrows. <laughs> Skunks have stink gas that they can stink their prey with. <laughs> they've all got something. But what does a sheep have? Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. It can't run fast. It's got no fangs, no sharp claws. It's got nothing. Except a shepherd. The shepherd is its only defense. And here is this lost sheep. It's away from the shepherd. So it's absolutely defenseless. It's in this dangerous environment, this place where it's going to be destroyed unless the shepherd goes after it. Now think about the environment of the coin. What kind of an environment was the coin lost in? It's in a home. What, but what place in the home? Notice that the woman takes up two things to attack certain other things. Takes up a lamp. What's she attacking with the lamp? Darkness. Takes up a broom. What's she attacking with the broom? Dirt. <laughs> this coin is in a dirty, dark place of the home. Now, in those days, they usually had dirt floors. And so it would be easy for the dust of that home to cover over a coin. And so here she's brushing with her broom, trying to uncover this coin. She's got her lamp because usually they didn't even have windows in the homes. So she's got a source of light. She's got a source of cleansing. And she's looking in all over that house for that coin. This is a dirty, dark environment. And the world we live in is dangerous, first of all. It's dangerous to your soul. Because unless you find an answer to your sin problem, you will perish. It's very, very dangerous. It's also a dark place. And it's also a very dirty, filthy place. Yeah. Jesus came into this world, but I don't think Jesus ever really felt at home in this world. You know, we, it's, it's strange that we can feel at home here. The Bible says we're aliens. We're just passing through. This isn't our home. Our home's heaven. That's where we ought to feel at home. This is kind of a strange environment for a child of God to be in. Over in Philippians chapter 2, Paul speaks to the Philippian believers. And he says in Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a, notice these words, crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So if we appear as lights in the world, what does that tell us about the world we live in? It's a dark place. 
If the world around us is crooked and perverse, that means that it's a dirty, filthy, ugly world that we live in, full of crookedness and perversity around us. That's the environment that we live in. So there is our word lost. Lost coin, lost sheep, total inability, lost by nature and by choice, ruined, unsalvageable, irrecoverable, in a dangerous, dark, and wicked environment. Now let's move over to the word found. The word found. The word, the word found implies salvation. That lost thing being found means that the thing is saved, right? So, a couple of questions for you. Number one, how does he save them? How does the shepherd save the sheep? How does the woman save the coin? How do they find them? Well, first of all, they have to go into the environment of that lost thing, right? The shepherd has to leave the 99 and he's got to go downhill and dale. He's got to go into elements of heat or cold or sleet or rain or snow, whatever environment that lost sheep is in, he's got to go there. He's got to go into that dangerous place where they're predators, wild animals. And he's got to go into that place to rescue that lost sheep. And so Jesus had to come into our environment. He left the pristine beauty and holiness of heaven where he was adored and worshipped and glorified by all the angels there. He left that place and he came into this sin-filled, filthy cesspool, this world. I, I, sometimes I wonder, how, how did Jesus feel coming into this world when he came from a place where he'd never witnessed a sin, never seen any rebellion against God in the place of heaven where everyone always loves him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he comes into this world and everyone's fallen. The curse is on the world everywhere. Everybody sins. Everybody disobeys. It must have been quite a shock to such a holy person. But when he did that, he made himself vulnerable now. Up in heaven... Where, where Jesus is pure God and he only has a divine nature and he has never become man, when he's in heaven, he's not exposed to things like temptation, right? He's not exposed to hunger or thirst or fatigue or suffering or death. In fact, as pure God, he can't die. But now that he's a man, he becomes vulnerable to all those things. Now he experiences hunger and thirst and fatigue and suffering and temptation and ultimately he does die because he comes into the environment of that sheep. Not only that, but he comes into the environment of the coin. He comes into this filthy place, this dark place. The holy, spotless Son of God comes into a place that is so opposite his nature because he loves the thing that's lost there. <laughs> Do you see why? He's willing to come into this world because he loves what's lost and he's intent upon reclaiming it. The second thing he's got to do is he's got to actually bring that lost thing back. That lost thing's not coming on its own. If it's going to be reclaimed by him, he's going to have to go get it and he's going to have to... Well, the shepherd, the shepherd goes and finds the sheep. He hoists it on his shoulders and he holds two of the feet with one hand two of the feet with the other, and he brings that lost sheep back, and he puts him back in the fold, and sometimes he'd have to break a leg and bind the leg up so that that sheep would just follow him around and never go wandering again. But that sheep was not coming back unless the shepherd goes and gets it, right? Jesus talked about that in, over in John chapter 10. I want to just read this to you. It's John 10, verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now notice several words in that verse. The word have, must, bring, will hear, and will become. Those five phrases because they teach us how Jesus reclaims lost sheep. He says, I have other sheep. Wait a minute. 
Who are you talking about, Jesus? He said they're not of this fold. Well, what fold? They're not of the Jewish fold. Well, then who are they? They're Gentiles. Well, does he mean every Gentile in the world? Yeah. No, he doesn't. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> he means... <laughs> I can tell your parents have been teaching you well. <laughs> he has elect Gentiles, chosen Gentiles, scattered throughout the world. And it's, he has them because his father gave them to him from before the foundation of the world. Jesus came from heaven into this world, not on a mission to save every person, although his death was sufficient for all, but he was intent on a mission to reclaim the lost sheep. Not the goats, the sheep. The ones the father had given to him from time eternal. Or Ephesians 1.4 says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So it shows the sovereign purpose of the shepherd, the sovereign purpose of this woman who reclaimed the coin. So he must bring them. He has them. But he must bring them. Must. It's a word of necessity. Why must he? Because of verse 18. This commandment I received from my father. What commandment? The commandment to go get the sheep. God gave them the sheep. And it was the God's commandment to Jesus to go get them. That's why he came into the world. To get these sheep that God had given him before time began. He has them. He must what? Bring them. He must bring them. He, he has, <laughs> they're dead weight. They're just going to stay there unless he actually brings them back. And then he says, and they will hear my voice. I want you to notice something back in Luke 14. The last verse of Luke 14 says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The first verse of Luke 15 says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to hear him. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All the tax collectors came near to hear him. Who were the ones who had ears to hear? The sinners. The tax collectors. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't have ears to hear. Jesus says in John chapter 10, that these will hear his voice. How are they going to hear him? Not all men have ears to hear. This is a work of the Holy Spirit to open up the inner ear of the heart to hear and to embrace the gospel. Just like it says in Luke or Acts 16.4, the Lord opened up the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. He opened the heart. He opens the ears. He uncovers the blinded eyes. He enables us to see the glory of Christ and we come. And not only that, but he finishes this up in 16 by saying, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Do you see this, the certainty behind all of this? Nothing's left to chance. Nothing's left to fate. Nothing's left to chance. This has been secured in the covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before time. They have contracted together, covenanted together, to save a people for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes into the world with these people on his heart. And he comes to get them. He comes to get these lost sheep. So how does he save them? He comes into their environment and he actually literally brings them to himself. Why does he save them? That's the second question I want you to think of. Why does this shepherd go looking for the sheep? Why does the woman go looking for the coin? Well, there's many, many reasons. I'm going to give you four of them. First of all, because of a sense of responsibility. See, this shepherd was not a hireling. A hireling doesn't care about the sheep. He's there just to make a buck. And when the wolf comes, he splits. Jesus was not a hireling. He was a shepherd. He owned the sheep. In fact, he says here in Luke chapter 15, verse 6, he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found who? My sheep. It's not somebody else's sheep. It's mine. The Father has given me this sheep. 
There's a sense of ownership. Jesus was entrusted with the, the keeping, the safe keeping of these sheep. God charged him to come into the world to save these sheep. So he has this responsibility laid upon his shoulders by God the Father. And that's why Jesus came into the world. A sense of responsibility. But that's not all. There's also a sense of compassion that drove Jesus to this. The shepherd knows that that sheep is defenseless. It's going to be destroyed before the sun comes up the next day unless he goes something. Unless he goes, leaves, and does something to reclaim that sheep. There's a sense of pity or compassion for that sheep, knowing it's going to be destroyed if he doesn't do something. And Jesus came into the world with a sense of compassion for those lost sheep that would perish unless he came to save them. Isn't that beautiful to know that God is not just some distant deity off there, but he has a throbbing heart of love and compassion to save lost sinners like us. Thirdly, he did this because of the joy that awaited him for finding these articles. Joy is a big theme in these verses. Notice verse 5. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, what? Rejoice with me. This is a command. <laughs> he gathered his friends and his neighbors, you folks, start rejoicing with me. For I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Does any of this ring any bells for you? Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus not only came into this world because he had compassion on us, which is true, and not only because he had a sense of responsibility to do this, laid upon him by the Father, which was true, but he came into this world because he wanted the joy that would be his when all of us are found and all of us are surrounding him in heaven and he is the center of heaven. And all of us are worshiping and praising him and thanking him and glorifying him for what he's done to reclaim us. But there is one more. Responsibility, compassion, joy. The fourth one is out of a sense of self-interest. Now this one might surprise you, but think about the lost coin. This woman wasn't looking for the coin because she had compassion on the coin, right? She was looking for the coin because of what the coin would do for her, right? There was a sense of loss while that lost coin was still lost. This woman valued the coin. There was a sense of value that it gave her, and while it was gone, she didn't enjoy that value of that coin. Now, intrinsically, if we just look at ourselves, in ourselves we are depraved, we're corrupt, we're wandering, we're trying to be independent of God. In a sense, we're worthless, if you look at our intrinsic worth. This isn't talking about intrinsic worth. This is talking about the worth that Jesus ascribes to his lost sheep because of the value he places upon them, knowing what he's going to do for them what he's going to make them into. There's a sense of loss in the heart of Christ and in the heart of the Father for his elect people as long as they are still lost. He wants them into his kingdom because there's value in them. He deems them precious in his sight. How else would we explain a scripture like Isaiah 43.4? Now we know that Christ is precious to us, but an equally wonderful truth of the Bible is that we as His chosen people are precious to Him. Isaiah 43, 4 says, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Now there he's talking about Israel. But the church, we are the Israel of God today. We are the covenant people of God under the new covenant. We are chosen and precious and honored in the sight of Jesus Christ. Isn't that, 
it's amazing on the one hand when you see your, who I am and myself, I know my sin. <laughs> and I don't see any reason why the Lord would call me valuable. But he does it because he knows what he's going to make Brian into one day. He's going to know how he's going to, how he's going to cleanse him and remove all vestiges of sin and make him into that holy person, spotless, in God's presence for all eternity. You know how he takes a Simon, vacillating one, and he makes him into a rock? You see, he, he, sees, what the, he sees the end. He sees the end for all of us, and he values what he's going to do in all of our lives. And we are precious to him. So, he saves us because of a sense of responsibility, compassion, joy, and self-interest. Now let's move on to the third word. The word joy. The word joy. Who is rejoicing here? Who's rejoicing? Look at verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven... That's the only clue we get from verse 7. Whoever's rejoicing is somebody who's in heaven. Now that could be angels, right? It could be saints, or it could be God. Now, go down to verse 10. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Interesting. He doesn't say in heaven now. He says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. He doesn't say there's joy in the angels. There's joy in the presence of the angels. Well, who's in the presence of the angels? God is. <laughs> God is. Matthew 18.10. Listen to this scripture where Jesus talks about these little ones that were coming to him. This is Matthew 18.10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So, I don't know that I could be dogmatic on this, but I'm, in myself, I'm persuaded that when he talks about joy in heaven, joy in the presence of the angels of God, he's talking about the joy of God himself. When a sinner is reclaimed, God rejoices. <laughs> and God's joy is infectious. So when God starts rejoicing, guess who else starts rejoicing? The angels and the saints Anybody close to God. God fills heaven with his joy over sinners who come to repentance. Did you, did you ever think about God as being a rejoicing God? It's kind of a different idea. God is a rejoicing God. In fact, I've called this whole sermon the joy of the seeking Savior because Jesus perfectly mirrors God's heart. So here we find it's God himself who is filling heaven with joy. Now why does he rejoice? Is it because of what the sheep did? Is he patting that sheep on the back saying, well, you're a mighty special sheep. I, I, I guess you deserve some joy here. Look at what he says. Verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. What's he rejoicing in? His own work. He's not rejoicing that the sheep did something special. He's rejoicing that he had done something special. He's rejoicing that he found the lost sheep. What does God rejoice in? God's work. God rejoices in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. He rejoices in the work of redemption, the finished work of the cross. He rejoices that Christ has finished for once and for all time the work, and he's brought us into his kingdom. So God's not rejoicing that there's something special that we did. God's rejoicing that there's something special that Jesus did. And he's taking great joy in that. Same thing in verse 9. When she's, the woman finds the coin, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. That's what we find over in Ephesians 2.7. In Ephesians 2, the first three verses, it shows the deadness and depravity of man. Uh, there's no more bleak picture of a lost person's condition than in verses 1 to 3. Spiritually dead, formerly walking according to the course of this world, 
They lived according to the prince of the power of the air, that is the devil, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And it's not just them out there. He says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, okay, this is by birth, we were children of wrath, even as everybody else in the world. We're no different from them. All people by nature are children of wrath. But God, here's the difference. It's not us that made the difference, it's Him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, parentheses, by grace you've been saved, end parentheses, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? What was His ultimate design in all of that? Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants to show off his work. He wants to show off his grace. He wants to say, look what I did with the likes of people like them. They're trophies of my grace. I'm going to set them on my mantle. I want to look at those guys. Look what I did to those people, those depraved, corrupt sinners. Look at them. Look at them now. They're shining like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What a glorious work. And guess what? We all look at each other and we're rejoicing too. And we're awed and we're amazed. Wow, look at what he did with this guy and with that girl and with this girl and that guy. I, I can't believe it, you know? And we're... we're <laughs> We're overcome along with God and we express joy and hallelujahs to what He has done. Rejoicing in His work. There's a verse that I, I want to share with you this morning from the Old Testament. It's the book of Zephaniah. You may have a hard time finding it. It's about three or four books from, from Matthew, that way. <laughs> anyway, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And I think this is the, the day coming when we are surrounding the throne and our joy-filled God is going to shout over us with shouts of joy. My people are here. They're surrounding my throne. They will never be missing again. So this is quite a revelation. Think about God from now on as a God of great joy. He, he rejoices when sinners are reclaimed by His work. Now, let's make some application this morning. Two questions for you. Let's go back to Luke 15. First question, have you repented? Good. Good. The reason, I, the reason I ask that is from verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Who are these 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent? Yeah. I mean, we, we could be confused and read that and think, are there people that don't need to repent in the world? No. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. In their estimation of themselves, they didn't need to repent. It's like the Pharisee that went up with the tax collector to pray in the temple, and he doesn't repent in his prayer, does he? He says, I thank you that I'm not like him and not like them, and I'm better than them, and I'm... Lord, thank you for... I guess you're pretty lucky to have me on your team, Lord. Thanks. <laughs> That's his prayer. And the, the tax collector won't even look up to heaven. He looks down. And he's a great way off from that holy Pharisee. He's not worthy to be in his company. He's way over here. And he's beating his breasts because the, his heart was the seat of all his trouble. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Who repented? The tax collector. The Pharisee thought they had no need for repentance. And Jesus says, guess who went home forgiven that day? It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. So have you repented? We've talked about the work of Jesus to save us, and it is His work, but He doesn't save a person without that person repenting. Notice 
God rejoices over one sinner who repents. When a person repents, that's the signal that they have been found. You have not been found yet unless you have repented. What a foolish idea that you can be saved and go to heaven without repenting. It doesn't square with the Bible, my friends. You can't be saved unless you repent of your sin. Impossible. And repentance includes conviction of your sin, knowledge of your sin, willingness to turn from your sin and contrition. It's like Psalm 51. The sacrifices that God desires is a broken and contrite heart, a broken and contrite spirit. That's repentance. We're going to find repentance in the next section with the lost son. Do you know where repentance happens in that story? You all know the story very well. Do you remember when he's off in the far country feeding the hogs and wishing he could eat some of their food? All of a sudden, he comes to his senses. And he says, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? I, if I just went back and hired myself out as a servant, I'd have better food to eat than I have right here. That's where re repentance took place. He turned around, right? He was facing towards the hogs. He turns around and he starts heading home. That's repentance. He made a U-turn, a change in direction, changed his mind, changed his heart, and changed the direction of his life. That's where repentance took place. Now you see, the Pharisees looked at repentance, well, this is, they looked at sin as a pleasure that they had to deny themselves. And they felt like they were earning points with God because they were denying themselves these sins that they really wanted to commit. Denying themselves the pleasures of sin. But see, biblically, sin is not a pleasure to deny yourself. Sin is a state of misery. Like that sheep in this miserable, lost, howling wilderness with wolves all around it. That's what sin is like. Or sin is like a coin being in this filthy, dark, dank place. Right? That's, that's sin. And so repentance is the lights going on where you realize, no, sin isn't some pleasure for me to deny myself. Sin is, is this miserable state for me to escape from. And when the prodigal son had the lights go on in his mind, there was no, no choice. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Turn around and go back home. And when God turns the lights on in our mind, it's a no-brainer. Go to Jesus. <laughs> what am I doing in this sin? This is stupid. <laughs> Eating hog food when I could go home? This is stupid. What am I doing here? And the lights go on and we change the direction of our life and we head back home. We head back to God. So the, the lesson here is that, my friends, you and I, we can't enter heaven. We can't go to heaven. We can't be saved unless we repent of our sin. So have you repented? If you've just kind of been showing up for church, going through the motions of being religious, but never repenting, that's a really, really dangerous sign because it means you're not saved unless you've ever repented of your sin. And it's not something we do once either, right? It's something we do all the time. As, as often as the Lord shows us our sin, we have to repent of that sin. So that's the first question. The second question is, who are you most like in this story? Are you most like the Pharisees and the scribes? Or are you most like Jesus? Jesus was trying to show these Pharisees God's heart. And that he was only doing what God does in heaven. God joy, rejoices over sinners coming home. Jesus was rejoicing when sinners came to him to eat with him. And he welcomed them. He invited them home. The Pharisees, hands up, 10-foot pole, stay away from me. I don't want you to defile me. Who are you most like? Are you like Jesus, welcoming sinners? Eating with them? Sitting down with them? Talking to them? Loving them? And rejoicing when they start to get it? Are you like that? Or are you like, stay away from me, I don't want you to defile me. I don't want to be polluted by your stuff. Stay over there. It's a hard question because as Christians, we can act a lot like Pharisees. I think the Lord wants us to act like Him. Don't you? The whole goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus Christ.
So let's pray this morning that if we have a pharisaical heart, God will change that. And he'll give us the heart of God, rejoicing in lost people coming home and welcoming them and inviting them to eat with us. But friends, I, I would encourage you, have sinners over into your home. Have your neighbors over. Have, have them over for dinner. If you know lost people, build bridges of friendship with them. That doesn't mean that you become like them. It means that you stay Christ-like, but that difference is, is something that's attractive. And it can be a source of attraction to lost people. So I just want to encourage you. Who are you like? Let's be like Jesus. Father, we do pray that you would drill down these truths into our life, that we would become different people. We want to be like Christ, who modeled the heart of God. We want to have God's heart towards lost people. We rejoice in the work of grace and salvation that you have wrought in our lives. And Lord, we desperately want to see you extend that to other people far and wide. Lord, there are thousands of people here in Rancho Cordova alone, not to mention the greater Sacramento area that are lost. Just irrecoverable, unsalvageable, ruined, will perish unless you reclaim them. And we pray that, Lord, you would show compassion on them. That, Lord, you would reclaim them. Bring great joy to yourself, Lord. Show off your work of grace, Lord, in their lives. And use us in the process of steering them in the right direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.